Hello and welcome to the OT Podcast Club podcast. This time we listen to Occupied episode 74, Dev, They, Them and Brock, He, Him, deep dive into gender identity and stigma, which led to a wide-ranging conversation covering pronouns, toileting, occupational justice and the ripples we can all make through society. We hope you enjoy these highlights of our chat. So I've listened to this twice. Um, Once, I don't know, someone over the summer when I listened to it out of interest and it utterly made me think. And then again, recently this week, because I was like, I must listen to it before we do podcast club. And one of the smaller aspects of it that listening again made me go, I'd forgotten that was um, about finding gender-neutral placeholder topic things. They talk in the podcast about not calling everybody man or not calling everyone cis. And I'm aware in uh, some of my voluntary work that I do that I call everyone who's male in that sir as a mark of respect and a way of trying to build rapport. And it's made me really think, ooh, not sure I can do that all the time, but I didn't necessarily have a good idea for what I could do as a replacement. So I'm just going to open that up for ideas from the group. It's hard, isn't it? Because even kind of like mate and stuff like that actually quite gendered, aren't they? You know, I don't know. Do people think mate is gendered? I use that indiscriminately. I would say people use it more with men. But then I use guys as either. So if I was talking to a girl of my a group of my female friends, I go, "Hey guys, mm. yeah, but that's male." Yeah, I do that too. We've gone straight for the binary. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's very hard in that context of yeah, where maybe it's even a verbal thing and it's a maybe fleeting or very quick interaction, right? Because usually, a, like in an OT context, maybe you have more time to actually investigate and explore those things with the with the client um whereas yeah when it's kind of just this initial once-off kind of uh, thing and you don't know their name so usually i would say like just addressing people by their name is a good way to avoid pronouns and things um but yeah in that context you, you have very little to go on by the sound of it which is really challenging and then as you said maybe trying to keep not an air of professionalism but maybe of respect you know maybe as well you don't want to go too formal or too informal like hello Hi, pal, or hi, uh, mate, or something like that. <laughs> I totally agree with like sometimes we say things and it's not intentional to offend people, but I don't think we're very good at telling each other if we've if and when we've offended people. So it is good if if we know and we can apologise. But I think half the time we probably don't know we've offended that person, and then we're just going to carry on doing it. Yeah, and you may just do things naturally. It's like right at the end of that podcast when Brock said yeah. his and it wasn't until it was pointed out by Deb I hadn't even noticed and I thought well there's something ironic in that isn't there that I've sat and listened to this entire podcast and then didn't notice the error right at the end. There's something that goes along with that that it's actually really important that as a, um, a cisgendered female who's never had to think about any of this that it is my responsibility to recognize it and think about it as well because actually if we're relying on someone telling me that I've offended them that's not fair that's you know putting all the work on someone else who's already had a harder life than me just because of that and I think so 
it, it's really hard, isn't it? It's a sort of, I want to not say anything offensive. I want you to tell me if you've offended me, but then I also want to do that work myself. It's that thing of wanting to do the right thing and not put your foot in it. And you could hear throughout the podcast, Brock, although he did slip up, was trying incredibly carefully, wasn't he, to do and say the right thing. But then sometimes, um, you know, because we haven't had the training or the education or the life experience or whatever, it's hard to know what the right thing is. But I think there's a lot in the, you don't necessarily have to do the right in inverted commas thing. It's just the willingness to hold your hands up and say, I don't know, but I'm trying to learn. I don't Mm. know. And I want to acknowledge, I want to validate your identity. Please show me how. Because no, but no one person is ever going to understand the situations of everybody, yeah. um, and gender, sexuality, identity. Full stop is a very individual thing, isn't it? So mm-hmm. nobody's going to know the one answer for everybody. It's making me think of the. Um, I went to one of Beck Twinley's thing around the dark side of occupations. And one of the things I took from it the most is that there are things that we dare not to talk about that actually we should just talk about as if they're normal because that very essence of not talking about them perpetuates that culture of um, feeling inadequate about talking about it or as if it's a taboo topic. And that aspect around the anxiety that was around in Brock and Dev's conversation, they both talked about having a level of fear about, am I going to represent my community accurately? Am I going to get some of this wrong and inadvertently offend? I don't think that level of anxiety helps. I think if we can just go, yeah, none of us are perfect. We are going to talk about it is um, more helpful. Yeah. I was just going to say, I think there's something quite important um, that really struck me when I heard Dev say that actually for them, to say as a healthcare worker where they work, it's not safe to disclose their um, gender identity. And, and then talking about the states where, you know, people can be fired for coming out as gay or trans or that kind of thing. And actually that really um, made me think about that, you know, that, that for me in my life, it's not ever been an issue. And again, I'm very privileged in that. And, and I probably have a very naive view that everyone thinks like me and, you know, so no one comes across any bigots or anything like that because that's not nice. Um, so, so I'm in this sort of little bubble of safe, happy world. And then I'm kind of going, oh, God, but actually the UK isn't quite like that. So there's the sort of we live in a country where you're not allowed to discriminate anymore, but probably loads of people do. And then there's a bubble of, and then there's the people who do more than discriminate and are horrific bigots and we don't like them. And then you get into the, oh, Jesus Christ. And then there's like the refugees who are coming over here who have come because of this, because they literally, their lives were in threat because of this. And it's just so far removed from my, my privileged life, you know, and actually to get my head around that is, is quite hard. Just one of those things that just makes you, oh God, the world isn't where I think it should be. 
And I think as therapists and as healthcare professionals, actually that's where we do have some clear responsibilities over actually we hold the power and we have much more responsibilities, I guess, in that context to set some of these things off so that we can make safe spaces. I was thinking around the idea of the evolving trust that is required perhaps for people to tell you their pronouns and but that actually at initial contact I think there's something we should be doing and could be doing to put those things just in the forum because I was thinking about when you start with a service the first thing you do is fill out a load of forms and actually if on those forms it just said what's your pronoun or how do you identify? Even if people didn't want to say at that point, it did give an opportunity and it puts it that that's an acceptable topic for us to um, be thinking about and coming back to. Just in, just in terms of like a visual cue, isn't it? It's like, it's okay, it's on our agenda, it's all right. Um, I think the good idea, you said about having it on the form is a good idea because like Dev said, just if somebody has on the bottom of their email pronoun them, whatever they've got on it, their email, it makes him feel validated because somebody's actually took the time to do that. So if we put that on every form, like that's a two second job. And if that could make people more comfortable by that's a start, isn't it? But equally, that's an easy thing for a cis person to do, less so for anybody that isn't it's it's an easy thing for somebody that's never questioned their alignment between their assigned at birth sex and their gender identity to throw their pronouns in their bio or in their email signature it's a harder thing for somebody that yeah yeah definitely but then like how do we acknowledge that we're I'm, thinking about it do you know what i mean i'm not saying it's a bad thing i'm saying it's a good thing i'm just acknowledging the fact that it's it's easy for a cis person to do so yeah yeah definitely it's an interesting side of it isn't it that if everyone had to then it would be horrific because then you would have to be defining yourself and putting it out there whether you want to or not and and as you say there are some people you would want to and some people you wouldn't want to and oh god yeah yeah it's horrible that it's like that though isn't it because then you're stuck aren't you because like it's horrible that people don't feel comfortable to do that but then if people don't do that then people can't understand because they don't know but then like we've got to a point where people don't feel comfortable and that's not nice and then you wouldn't want anyone to feel forced to have yeah so like you were a bit stuck i feel yeah i think it raises a really valid point of like there's lots of ways you can ask that information and different options you can have and I've even seen it go wrong where maybe places have tried to be inclusive and they put in another option, but then, you know, it still doesn't include everybody. I, I think you, you can, it's not always maybe nice to have an option of prefer not to say, but I think more importantly as well, when we're gathering this information on documentation or anything, like to ask if we also even really need a gender question, you know, and what is the relevance of it or, or what purpose is it kind of serving, you know? And I think a lot of the times it's, not actually that relevant <laughs> um it might be for certain things like very maybe more medical or health related things maybe and then they need to kind of um find out but yeah i question sometimes whether it's even necessary to have a gender question on there 
or whether you just again are guided by the person and, and your interactions with them does it you know does it change your intervention one way or another which is interesting because i as you talked about having a gender option then on the form i was thinking i think what you're talking about is what i would call a sex option the biological aspect of it as opposed to gender which is an identity construct part of it does that make sense I don't have a particular point other than just to say that. <laughs> I think there is something in there about within healthcare, um, there are sex differences and there's an element of within healthcare, it is sometimes necessary to know someone's sex. Um, and I wonder whether if we need to keep the sex question we then actually need the gender question because so many people assume the gender from the sex or assume that they're the same, that actually, because we need one, yeah, to sort of recognize that we notice that difference and that this bit of information is to guide the healthcare or the, the physical side of stuff. And actually we recognize that that doesn't lead on to the gender question, that that is a different identity issue. And like, I can crow about it being OT's responsibility for the cows come home, but um, one of the most like fundamental things, like especially in a physical setting, um, we support people to use the toilet independently, don't we? In a physical sense. So why not in a social, psychological, whole person sense? It's environmental. It's, it's a social environment and cultural environment. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think that's true, isn't it? Like we've, um, I remember one of uh, the O talks that talked about, and just some of my masters where it talked about actually we put in physical accessibility issues to address physical mobility restraints and limitations, but actually we should put in social structures and intervention to change some of the social and psychological barriers that people are experiencing as well that that's as much about environmental adaptations as anything else. Yeah, yeah. they've just announced, haven't they, about these changing places that all large um, shopping centres and everything else has now got to be built with a changing places area, but they could quite easily have also introduced something that either be it unisex toilets or however way you want to approach issue. They could have put that in there exactly the same time for that issue as well but they've obviously only gone down the the physical route at the moment mm. yeah because unisex toilets are so easy to do like we have them at, at uni don't we and you don't have to be trans to use them yeah it is crazy what a debate it causes at home we all share <laughs> like we share toilets at home That's exactly what i was gonna <laughs> say <laughs> i think it all links in with um kind of occupational justice and all that side of ot as well doesn't it because it's it's limiting a whole group of people's opportunities like you say honey you know it, it could make people think twice about going for a night out or you might think well I'll just go for one drink or two so I don't have to use the toilet or something which is yeah, just so unfair yeah I think as someone who qualified in times before occupational justice existed yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> some of these things to me like I, I hear people talking about them and I'm like oh my god yeah totally absolutely 
but then I get really frustrated because I don't know how that fits into my practice I can't change the institutions I can only work with the people I'm working with and I find that quite difficult sometimes there's the stuff I want to change and I want to be able to pluck the people out and just go do you know what we're changing all of this social stuff around you and we're going to get rid of all of these institutional biases and all of that and but actually that's not realistic in my day-to-day practice my day-to-day practice is about helping that person negotiate the fact that they live in this shit world that has this stuff going on around them and I don't know whether just recognizing that and helping and, and being sort of one person who acknowledges that that's part of the cause, that all the cause isn't within themselves, that, that you know, there is all this other stuff. Uh, yeah. No, I, I, I see that what you see, because, you know, us students are waffling on here about occupational justice. In the real world, it's not that simple, is it? You know, we'd all love to kind of go and, you know, make the world a fair and happy place through OT, but you know not very realistic unfortunately is it but it is because we have to start somewhere well that's true we have to all own that responsibility to make the small changes that we have the power within us to make the change to send the ripples to making the world a better place so yeah we can't change the whole world but we can change little bits of it yeah i think it's about education as well so when you come up with this terminology for me it sounded daunting but when you start looking into it I think you can actually empower the people you're working with to help them understand maybe why they're in that circumstance, what they are up against, how they can tackle that, give them the tools to understand it a bit better because sometimes it takes a little bit of unpicking but by simplifying it down into its kind of purest format you can offer it as a, like I said, like a tool for them to think, oh okay, so this is why I'm up against this situation with, I don't know, say my benefits. And that's impacting my housing. And that's why that's happening. You know, you can actually, you can, you can help them to understand it and make improvements where they can. There's potential opportunities for just within your own team as well. I mean, you know, you have team meetings or, you know, as OTs were supposed to be completing CPD and educational things and learning. So you, if it's something you feel strongly about, then there's nothing to stop you um, sort of putting your hand up and saying, well, I've got a topic that I'd like to discuss in our next team meeting, be that just with OTs or that could potentially be across a wider MDT and even just by starting that conversation you might just raise people's awareness and then you know even if that only take only one or two people take that on board that's one or two people that weren't doing it before so that that's your ripples isn't it? I think I think you're exactly right I think obviously um I wrote my some people won't know so I wrote my master's dissertation on um gender diversity in OT and OT students perspectives of that and even though we haven't discussed the like the findings of the research or whatever even just that act of me doing that piece of research and having conversations about the fact that I was doing that piece of research has planted that seed in so many people and if we can all just have the power to have that little conversation that plants that seed then that really does make a difference. Agreed. I think to go back to where Kate started, I think there is an aspect of our practice that's both about that really individual thing that we do with the actual person we're working with and the other opportunities that perhaps we don't necessarily always feel as qualified for, but actually it is a political world and we can advocate on behalf of people and we can 
raise issues and we can do other stuff. Yeah, I totally agree, Ruth, with what you're saying. And I know realities of practice hit home and constrain people then in, in, in different ways. But like, I like that what we were talking earlier about like the physical environment and then we're kind of, you know, it's like we very much know how to intervene and adapt physical environments. But I think there's, it's also well within the scope of open practice to provide like social and cultural environmental interventions and whether that looks like, you know, education and kind of workshops and things like that for, you know, your hospital or your university or whatever it is, um, that can cause a bit of a, a culture shift or a social change. Um, being on like getting involved in advisory boards or I was involved in a policy group in the university I used to work with um, and it was I was very much I felt like actually I held a bit of clout because I could say I was an occupational therapist and uh, from yeah talk, looking at students environments and that like yeah bathrooms were, and changing spaces were a really important thing to consider um, and then also in terms of social kind of interventions I think that if maybe on a more individual level kind of as you say Kate like it's maybe it's about then linking that person in with other social supports, other social groups, peer support groups that experience similar challenges to them also, which can maybe help develop their resilience and help them navigate the broader social context that you're right. Like we, we very much, we can't change overnight at least if, you know, it, it takes longer than that. But I think there, I, I think, and you know, OTs are great at this and crop up in all walks, all different areas, you know, that um, working in non-traditional areas. I think is also, you know, OTs are well placed to do that. I think it's also about um, it, kind of having to be very brave sometimes, isn't it? And and be the one that calls out bigotry and and sticks up for people when maybe no one else is. And sometimes um, it's not necessarily intentional, is it? Like you, you say bigotry, but actually sometimes it's genuinely a mistake. True. Like yeah. Don't understand. Yeah. Sorry, I just. No, no, you're right. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's true, and it's yeah, and and when you you, you know maybe point it out to someone, they're a bit mortified that they've done it. But it's yeah. about having those conversations, isn't it? And it's it, I've been in that situation where at our weekly MDT meetings, um, there's a, a trans guy, and even though the team widely acknowledged that he is trans and that he's started his gender transition they were still using female pronouns and this happened at one meeting and I actually have to say that I didn't, I kept quiet. I was kind of in the silent rage and then it happened again at a second meeting and yeah, I just, I spoke up and actually I think Hannah's point is really good. In my head, I had built it up to be very, I don't know, deliberate and nearly like an act of aggression and things. And then as soon as I made the correction of, should we not be using masculine pronouns you know I don't know the person but if you know if they identify as a guy and then the whole team were like oh yeah you're right and you know adopted it straight away and then went on to refer uh, to him in hopefully the correct way and I was shocked at like how a little you know thing like that actually it caught like the team responded really well to it and I think it was, it was more of a I don't know a lack of education lack of awareness or just like not thinking it through but all it took was maybe one person so to even just it comes back to i think what kate sorry niall i interrupted you talking no, I'm finished. Um, what kate said at the beginning about um if you are this you might never have had to think about gender in any way before so it doesn't come naturally to you because you might never have had those thoughts or conversations so it is about having the confidence to pipe up like you said yeah 
it's not just the people that we work with in terms of our patients, our service users, whatever. It's our colleagues as well, isn't it? Um, yeah. I think kind of colleagues, it's easier. I mean, it's not easy because no one likes challenging their colleagues but actually at least with colleagues they should be doing better whereas actually with patients and service users i think it's much more delicate because if you stomp around going no you're racist you're not exactly building up a therapeutic working relationship um and yet you know there's the issue of um the nurses and doctors on the wards who someone will say oh, i'm not having a female doctor i don't think they're any good that kind of stuff like we don't we say we don't tolerate it but we sort of do because we sort of have to at some point because we have to give someone a service and i think that area is really horrible and gray and yeah and i think that can be difficult on the wards as well because whilst we may be accepting of what somebody wishes to be referred to if you're on a mental health ward where people's capacity may not be as good, then they may not respect that person's decision. And then you've got a situation on the ward where, again, you can't sort of force somebody to change their opinions, but equally you don't want the person, the other person to feel victimised, threatened, not safe on the ward and so on. And that's quite a difficult balance. I'm not, I'm not quite sure. I haven't been in that situation. I'm not quite sure how... Or, or what the best way to manage that would be. I mean, obviously you could correct the person, but whether they would listen, whether they would have the capacity to understand, I don't know. I guess we're talking about it in that context as if, as if the context was that it was another patient on the ward, but equally we could have trans colleagues yeah. and who are, as you said with your example of doctors and nurses, and people are responding negatively to them, and it's that difficulty of how to get the balance of being client-centered and actually remembering we've got employment rights and we've got duty of care to people as employees and trying to navigate through those complexities are hard but they shouldn't be ignored <laughs> no yeah i don't know whether there's any lessons to be learned through sort of race and maybe areas like that that have been acknowledged far earlier than this issue has been yeah. acknowledged I was thinking about that. I was, I've put how to eradicate racism on my little notes as I was listening to this today, thinking actually we should be doing some of the same principles that we are starting to more openly talk about with race in the same bit about how to eradicate transphobia. It's not enough just to say I'm not racist, you have to be actively anti-racist, but we almost need the same around issues of trans and gender diversity. If I'm not particularly knowledgeable about a topic and I don't understand it very well, so say, for example, I've recently added my pronouns to my Twitter and I did that following on from listening to the podcast and I had thought about it before and I hadn't done it. And the reason I hadn't done it, I thought about it afterwards, I thought I haven't done that because I knew that if somebody challenged me as to why I'd done that, I didn't have a reasoned, well-thought-out argument as to why I'd done it it seemed important to me but I couldn't have defended it with knowledge if you know what I mean it would have just been about well I think it's the right thing to do and that to me didn't feel like enough of a justification but having then listened to what Deb was saying I'm like okay 
now I understand now I can make the change because if somebody then does say to me oh, what have you done that for I can go well let me tell you and then I can educate them I think you're absolutely right and it and it kind of comes back to um what Ruth was saying about being active in it like because occupational therapists are assumed to be inclusive and um like as a profession we we assume ourselves to be all kind of we're well up on inclusivity equality diversity blah 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 because we are those people um the rainbow badge for example people wear the rainbow badge I'm not saying everybody, but some people wearing the rainbow badge because they think it's the right thing to do and it's not necessarily underpinned by any understanding. And I think it's that active want to listen and active want to try and understand or active want to just do something that's more than just, I'm doing this because it feels like the right thing to do. Because it looks like the right thing to do and doesn't even actually align with their opinions or behaviour. That's even worse, yeah. Yeah, everybody else is doing this, so I'm going to jump on the bandwagon. And you kind of, I don't like being accused of that, which is where my kind of, I need my knowledge. And that's why critical thinking is so important, isn't it? And I think that level of knowledge is really important because I think there's the distinction between understanding someone else's experience, which you don't need to do, but understanding your actions, you do need to do. However, this seems a good time to absolutely flag up that there will be a no talk on the topic of gender diversity that's at I think the end of October, the 27th of October by my memory. And I think like if you look at the topics of O-Talk recently, there's been a, a noticeable drive, I think, within that to look at some issues of diversity that they had one that looked at race, they've had one that's looked at disability and then there's this one that's coming up that's looking at um, gender. So I, I think as a professional body and ARCOT, I'm not sure it's um, wholly proactive, but as a community of people, I think that might be different. Yeah. I think maybe the ripples are starting to happen at the, like the bigger organisations like ARCOT, WUFA, whatever. Because one, like one of my favourite things to say was what I wrote in my dissertation was, um, if you search the word trans or LGBT on Woofit or Arcot, you get no results and that speaks volumes because yeah. if inclusivity starts with visibility and you can't see the word, then that says there's tons. But I do think that they're starting to have the conversations now. That's uh, It's good. I ask because we're starting it also in our professional association here in AOTI and like I found I'm quite involved in it and I found our professional association to be hugely supportive of it. But equally, I think they didn't necessarily initiate it themselves. I think it took a group of people to come together and, and a group of therapists to come together and um, initiate it a bit. But they've been hugely supportive of all of the work that we've done. So we produced uh, LGBT good practice guidelines for OT yeah. years ago. Um, and that's gone really well. And it's been picked up internationally. And I think it's an amazing resource, but I think it also highlights just that very few uh, other countries or professional associations have put something together like that. So it's being taken on board now and adopted even by other countries, like it's being translated to Greek, to Portuguese, these things, which is awesome. beyond what we ever thought it would it would do. But I think it shows that there's like a appetite within the profession for conversation and guidelines around this and also that there's a gap going right back to yeah, curriculum levels that it's also in Ireland here not really satisfactorily covered in in any of the OT programs in, in universities um, 
And then following the publication of that, we've set up um, an advisory group. So a specialist, special interest group, sometimes they're called within the AOTI, specifically focused on this. And like, again, that's gotten huge support. And in the same way that there's dedicated interest groups for pediatrics or mental health or anything, we now have one for sexuality and gender, which has been a huge um, advancement, I think. In, in recent months so you know if there is anyone interested in it particularly over there amongst UK OTs you could also start a group and you know we can collaborate <laughs> I think there's something that's just coming to mind so it's not going to come out well formed I think there's something that links two things that I think Hannah said separately but are really important together um, along the lines of that there's there's the fact that that the profession is historically very white, middle class, not very diverse. And I think that, that probably the hierarchies still reflect that to a large extent. And when you combine that with your other point about um, we think that we are an open-minded, person-centered profession, actually that gives you a really huge blind spot, doesn't it? Because you think that you're really open-minded and, and person-centered and thinking about everyone's experiences, but actually you haven't ever had to think about other people's experiences. And I, and I think that, that that blind spot might be really important that actually we need to be challenging that. And, and for those of us on the ground who are recognizing that blind spot, maybe we need to be bringing it up more and saying, yeah, I don't want all people who look like me and sound like me and think like me representing me. I want better than that. I think there is a blind spot. And it, to me, it comes back to that idea that we can't be these issues neutral and pretend that they don't exist. They do. But we, we need some mechanisms and ways of um, bringing them into the open and um, challenging them and changing them. I think there's... Um... There's one word, the word normalise, because when we talk about issues of gender, sexuality, the word normalise, if we talk about it, it will normalise it, and normalise comes up all the while, all the while, but by saying the word normalise, that's implying that it wasn't normal in the first place, mm. and I think we should go with usualise maybe, or some other word, but not normalise. Yeah, agreed. I like it, yeah. I think normalize signifies some kind of then otherness that there is like normal and then like it isn't normal in the first place. Yeah. 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 It seems like there's a definition then for what normal is. That separates, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. And really, I think a lot of the time when we use normalize, we do mean usualize, even though that isn't a word. <laughs> but that's what we in yeah. some ways mean, isn't it? <laughs> it should be a word. I don't think it is, but maybe we could make it one. I came across a talk earlier, I forget exactly where, but it was exactly on this point and it was about mainstreaming and saying that we shouldn't want people to fit into the mainstream, rather we should want the mainstream to become so broad that we should be looking to maybe like diversify rather than... Diversity stream. Arm. Yeah. <laughs> and make a new word. Yeah. Thank you for listening to our conversation. There's a link to the Irish LGBT plus guidelines for occupational therapists in the show notes. Next time, we will be listening to the OT and Chill episode 11, L-O-V-E, Let's Talk About Race. We hope you can join us then.